This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium and a happy Easter and a blessed Passover. Next week is Orthodox Easter or Pascha, so I'll be extending my Easter greetings once again next week. Easter, of course, the most religious holiday on the Christian calendar and a belief in the in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ is at the very core of the faith, and we will be touching upon that in the hour that lies ahead. Just a brief note that we're not live streaming on YouTube tonight, but we will be live streaming or doing our HOAs, as they say, once again next week. Albert, the intern, has posted some fascinating stories in the highlight carousel atop of richardserrett.com. There's a step-by-step guide on lucid dreaming. Lucid dreaming is, is one of the most extraordinary experiences you can have as a, as a human being. Imagine being awake within a dream and being able to consciously interact with, with it just as you interact in the real world. Everything is saturated with color and, and vibrantly alive, and it feels far more real than waking life often does. Uh, so you'll want to check that out. It's a step-by-step guide on how to lucid dream. Uh, There's also a rather disturbing expose called Insurge Intelligence, which is a new crowdfunded investigative journalism project which breaks the exclusive story of how the United States intelligence community funded, nurtured, incubated Google as part of a drive to dominate the world through control of information. Seed funded by the uh, NSA and the CIA, Google was merely the first among a, a plethora of private sector startups co-opted by U.S. intelligence to retain information superiority. Those are just two of the stories you can read in the highlight carousel, again, at top atop of uh, richardserrett.com. And while you're there, don't forget to register, become a member uh, of richardserrett.com. You'll gain access to special member-only areas, including access to the past show archives. And uh, Eric is busy posting past shows and uploading the audio for those shows, going back all the way to the summer of 2012. So very soon, members can go back and listen to three years' worth of The Conspiracy Show. Uh, One more thing before we get tonight's presentation underway. Stand by at the bottom of the hour for your chance to win a pair of tickets to my live stage event, Follow the Truth 2. 
And of course, it's fast approaching that Sunday, April the 26th at the Region Theatre in Oshawa, Ontario. Followthetruth.tv. Followthetruth.tv for more info. Uh, Not sure if you were able to catch a glimpse of the most recent blood moon, which of course is the third in the uh, Tetrad. We are expecting one more. Um, Most of the eastern U.S. and Canada were sort of shut out of this uh, particular blood moon in the sky uh, because of uh, cloud cover and so forth. Um, The current uh, tetrad has become the focus of speculation in some circles because its relationship, uh, because of its relationship to the coming of the end of the world. There are two major blood moon references in scripture. Uh, They're pretty similar, uh, but in different books. in Acts, Acts chapter 2, verse 20, it says, The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and notable day of the Lord. Well, we're going to dive into end times prophecy right now, a field of study also known as Christian eschatology, which means uh, the events leading up to the end of history. What does the Bible say about the end times, the period known as the tribulation or Jacob's troubles, the rise of the Antichrist, the, the battle of Armageddon, and the second coming? My guest is an artist, human rights activist, New York Times best-selling author, internationally recognized speaker and recognized expert on Bible prophecy and the Middle East. He is also an ongoing contributor to WorldNet Daily. He's been featured on or has written for The Glenn Beck Show, The Mike Huckabee Show, The Dennis Miller Show, Chicago Public Radio, and Jewish Voice Today. Joel Richardson is the author of the provocatively titled When a Jew Rules the World. Is the return of Jesus closer than you think? And the director of the documentary End Times Eyewitness, Israel, Islam, and the Unfolding Signs of the Messiah's Return. Hey, Joel, how are you? I'm doing very good. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate you hanging with us. Uh, As we um, head into the Easter and uh, Passover season, uh, let's, uh, well, first of all, I want to ask you about the title, When a Jew Rules the World, because obviously that's a pretty provocative title, and if people don't know you or, or, you know, what you're about and they see that title, um, you know, obviously that could cause uh, some consternation with some people. Explain what that title means. Yeah, well, I was... Looking at uh, many of the you know conspiracy theories with regard to the Jewish people, they control the world. The world Zionist uh, conspiracy is controlling all things. And my idea was to really take that idea and sort of throw it back in their face and say, yes, in fact, there is a Jew who will rule the world. Uh, the Jews do not control the world right now, but there is a time when. Uh, God himself will return in the form of of Jesus, and from Jerusalem he will rule the nations uh, on the restored throne of David. And so it's really just laying out the uh, the biblical story of of biblical hope, that which all the prophets are pointing to. Uh, Talk to me a little bit about the historical uh, evidence that uh, f- the historical evidence for uh, Jesus Christ's resurrection. Because, uh, you know, a lot of historians who started out as uh, skeptics and debunkers uh, and uh, academics, people like C.S. Lewis, who, who set out to disprove this as an historical fact, quickly became converts. Yeah, I mean, there's a tremendous—the the biblical story of Jesus, it is the most attested— story in all of ancient history. In fact, I mean, it it is the single most attested story probably in human history, 
and so you begin with the reliability, of course, of the New Testament documents. And uh, once you establish that these are, in fact, reliable documents, then we have the testimony of multiple eyewitnesses who claim that they were with Jesus, that they saw him uh, you know, during the time of his crucifixion, and then, of course, after his resurrection, and, and even beyond that, actually saw him ascend uh, into the clouds as, as he was taken up to heaven. And then you have these uh, you know, dozen or so men, uh, all of which, except for really one, uh, who died communicating to people that story that Jesus came, he was the fulfillment of the prophets, and of course he, he died and he, he rose again and ascended to heaven. And so either one, uh, you know, they were dying for a lie, all of them, or what they claimed to see and, and behold was in fact something that they thought was uh, worthy of dying for. Yes, it is interesting that the, the, the disciples uh, started out really uh, as debunkers uh, when, when they first learned about uh, Jesus' resurrection. They were the ones that uh, were skeptical, and uh, they were rather cowardly initially. Uh, but then, as you say, uh, each of them, save for one, ended up being martyred and uh, refusing to, you know, recant that story. So one has to ask, you know, why would one be willing to be put to the sword or crucified for something that's that didn't happen. Uh, Joel Richardson is with us. He's an artist, human rights activist, New York Times best-selling author. Uh, let's provide a little bit of a primer on, uh, I guess, eschatology, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the last days of, of history, uh, according to biblical prophecy. Uh, give us a kind of a timeline, how this I is going to, to break out, I guess, do we begin with the, the tribulation or Jacob's troubles? Yes. Uh, you know, according to testimony of the biblical prophets. Uh, the prophets, they repeatedly use the analogy of uh, a birth, which lead, you know, the birth pains which lead to a birth. And so when we're talking about that, the time of the birth pains, uh, for anyone who is a, you know, a parent, you know that there's the initial Braxton Hicks contractions. These are sort of the preliminary contractions, and these are the events that Jesus describes uh, in the first half of this final seven-year period that uh, is introduced in Daniel chapter 9. In those first three and a half years, Jesus describes as a time of wars, and you have you know, plagues that break out across the earth, rumors of wars, and, and these series of events which he describes as the beginning of birth pangs. But then in the middle of this seven-year period, you have a profound event that takes place in Jerusalem, where the Antichrist, again, he comes in many different names and different books of the Bible. But this individual who has been a deceiver, and he deceived Israel into entering into some form of security agreement, he actually takes his seat on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem and desolates the Jewish Temple. And from that point forward, you have uh, what Jesus and what the angel Gabriel himself, back in the book of Daniel, and then Jesus himself uh, playing off of this uh, Gabriel's words, says it will be a time of unparalleled uh, suffering and distress for the Jewish people, such as has not happened since there was a nation up until the end of time. So it's a very geographic-centric uh, uh, tribulation that takes place in Israel. Of course, there'll be tribulation all over the world. And this takes place for a period of three and a half years, which culminates 
with the return of the, the divine God-man uh, returning from heaven to deliver uh, his people in their darkest hour from the gathering of the nations against Jerusalem. And uh, where does uh, Gog and Magog uh, come into this timeline? Well, you know, in the past 50-plus years, you've had a lot of teachers that have tried to say that Gog-Magog is a separate, distinct battle, that Gog is a different invader other than the Antichrist, that his armies are different armies other than the armies of the Antichrist. But in fact, I think it's really quite clear when you really look at the context of the Ezekiel 38-39, the oracle, of Gog-Magog, that Ezekiel was really just telling the same story that all of the other prophets uh, were telling. And it's quite clear in the text, God himself says through Ezekiel, speaking to Gog, he says, Are you not the one that I have spoken of by my former prophets? For many years they declared that in the last days I would bring you against my people Israel. And, you know, the story of the prophets, it's a very day-of-the-Lord-centered story. It revolves around that final period. And, you know, you can't go anywhere in the prophets and find uh, the story of Gog-Magog. They're all talking about the invasion of the Antichrist. And really, the natural conclusion is that Ezekiel uses a different term for the Antichrist. He calls him Gog. And it's a, it's a very broad prophecy, which begins at the beginning of the seven years or sometime uh, before that, and it culminates with the return of Jesus. So it's a, it's a prophecy that actually envelops a fairly broad period of time. So just to clarify, uh, Joel, you're saying that uh, the battle of Gog Magog is, is not a distinct battle from the final battle of Armaged- Armageddon. They're really one and the same. Well, it culminates with the Battle of Armageddon, but yeah, we're dealing with the same characters. And it's actually really clear when you look at the conclusive, the concluding verses in chapter 39 as a direct result of the destruction of Gog and his armies. God says several things take place. He says, no longer will I allow my name to be blasphemed. He says, all the nations will know that I am the Lord, God of Israel. He says that Israel will come to know that I am the God of Israel. And he says he will pour out his spirit on Israel. Of course, we know that takes place when Jesus returns, according to Zechariah 12. They will look upon the one they have pierced, and every eye will see him. And, uh, and then it says, and all of the captives will return to Israel, but he will leave none left among the nations. And then, of course, you have the feast that is described at the end of Ezekiel, where the birds of the air, the beasts of the field... Uh, the, the call goes out for them to feast upon the flesh of kings and warriors. Well, this is the exact same feast that's spoken of in Revelation 19, which is the quintessential passage in all of the Bible that describes the return of Jesus, clearly uh, referring to the same great feast. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, many uh, interpreters of prophecy, they've, they've broken Ezekiel's prophecy out as distinct, and the reason they did that is because the nations mentioned are clearly Middle Eastern nations. And many of these teachers have begun with this very Western-centric, Eurocentric perspective of prophecy. They begin with this assumption that the Antichrist is the Pope or he's going to come from Europe. And so when they come to this prophecy that's clearly very North African, Middle Eastern 
centered, they go, well, this must be a different invasion. Ah. And then they begin their, their process of trying to prove that. But Joe, well, let me jump in here. Uh, uh, I apologize. I have to jump in, take a time out. We'll come back and we'll continue to discuss end times with Joel Richardson right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Loose lips sink ships, and sometimes corporations. Got something to say? Call Richard Serrett now at 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Big Brother is listening, and so are you, to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. We are back with Joel Richardson talking about uh, end times. Uh, Revelations is, um, or or Revelation rather, is, um, it's a tough book to wade through. I mean, unless you are, you know, well-versed in in the Bible, um, you know, it's filled with so much symbology and and, and metaphor. It's so easy to be uh, sort of led astray or get off in the wrong direction. I mean, and and you can, we hear so many alternative views of, in terms of, of end times, and, and you've pointed out some of the inconsistencies in interpretation and so forth. I mean, how, what is your foundation? I mean, how do you, how do you approach Revelation, for example? Yeah, well, you know, I have a very simple rule that I always encourage people as they're approaching the Bible, they want to understand the end times. The first rule is you don't begin in the last book of the Bible. Uh, the book of Revelation, it really, as you said, it's filled with symbolism, uh, metaphor, and, all, and so forth. But all of the symbolism is draws from previous books. And so the book of Revelation, it's this, it's this grand crescendo, but you can't understand it unless you understand the foundation. And that is primarily found in the Old Testament prophets. And so before you can even approach the book of Revelation, you have to be thoroughly well-versed in the story that all the prophets are telling. And it's a very uh, Israel-centric, a very Jerusalem-centric, and as I mentioned earlier, a very day-of-the-Lord-centric story, which is to say it's a story that ultimately revolves around the return of the Messiah and the establishment of his kingdom uh, on the earth from, from Israel. Once you understand that general story, then suddenly the prophets are opened up, suddenly they make profound sense, and then you can, you know, sort of move from there uh, into the book of Revelation, and the symbolism uh, begins to make much better sense. I've uh, had conversations, a number of conversations, with um, uh, Rabbi Jonathan Kahn and and, uh, Carl Gallops, who's a a good friend. Uh, You know, we've talked about uh, the mystery of the Shemitah, and we've talked about uh, the, uh, the the seven trumpets in, in Revelation. We've talked about, you know, the blood moons and so forth. What to you are the most compelling, most powerful prophetic signs uh, being fulfilled on the earth today? There's, there's many, many that we could look at, but, you know, there's one passage in particular that I'd love to, to highlight uh, to the listeners, and that's the prophecy of Daniel chapter 8. Now, if you, you, know, you open up the Bible and you look at this prophecy, you have this story, uh, this vision that Daniel had, first of a ram with two horns, and he comes from Persia, which is modern-day Iran, and he butts out throughout the Middle East, and it says that he, 
he's victorious and there's none that can stop him. Uh, and then after his grand military victory across the Middle East, this goat with one prominent horn, sort of a unicorn goat, he leaps from uh, from the from the west. And it, it, most translations say Greece, but the word there is actually Yavon, uh, which, biblically speaking, uh, speaks of that whole area of the Aegean Sea. It included much of modern-day Turkey. And so this goat comes from the west, and he crushes the ram that comes from Iran, and then uh, at that time the horn's broken off, and, um, and, and his new empire, if you will, is broken up into four, and out of that comes the Antichrist. Well, everyone says that this is historical Medo-Persia and then Alexander the Great, and I think that, that, that those historical conflicts, oh, they are a type uh, of the ultimate fulfillment, because if you actually look at the prophecy... Once again, Gabriel the angel shows up, and he tells Daniel three times, extremely clear. He says, Daniel, listen, I'm going to tell you the meaning of the vision. It concerns the time of the end. It concerns the final period of indignation. And then once again, he says, it concerns the time of the end. And so if we take a consistent uh, futurist interpretation of the prophecy, I believe that it's speaking of a, an Iranian war, that Iran is about to butt out, and it's, it's going to conquer much of the Middle East. And then I believe that there will be a, a massive Turkish, potentially a, a Turkish coalition, or just a Turkish response, and Turkey will crush Iran. And I believe that's the next major uh, event that we're going to see unfold in the Middle East. And I tell you, uh, Richard, when you look at the geopolitics of the region, that chessboard of the Middle East, it absolutely makes sense. You know, Iran has its proxies. They virtually control southern Iraq, the government of Iraq. They control much of Lebanon through Hezbollah. They now control the southern border of Saudi Arabia through the Houthi rebels in Yemen. Uh, you know, they've got their players everywhere. And then Turkey, of course, their, their junkyard dog, if you will, is ISIS. Everyone you know, wonders, well, who's pulling the strings behind ISIS? Well, within the intelligence community, it's clear that Turkey is the primary uh, party that is giving logistical weapon support to ISIS. All of these young men coming from Europe and the United States, they're flowing through Turkey. And Turkey is using ISIS as its proxy, as its junkyard dog, in its regional battle against Assad, again, who is a puppet of Iran, uh, in Syria, as well as the Kurds. The Turks hate the Kurds, as well as in their regional conflict with Iran. And I tell you that, that those two regions throughout history, they've always been in conflict. And I believe we're about to see one final grand clash between those nations uh, before the return of Jesus. And, and, and how... I think that Go ahead. Uh, what about uh, Russia and, and China's involvement in, in, a, in a battle of Armageddon? Will they be drawn into the conflict? And what does the, the Bible, uh, biblical prophecies, uh, what are the clues? Well, I mean, it, it mentions the king of the north, that's Daniel 11, that's another name for the Antichrist, and it mentions that he's very upset because he hears news from the north and from the east. And, uh, and then you have the armies from the east, um, and I believe that, uh, and, you know, as a result of that, he lashes out in a rage at many nations. I believe that Russia and China will be involved. I, I think that's probably the only direct mention we have of them is just 
you know, the, the, this this uh, reason for alarm that comes from both the north and the east. Um, but apart from that, you know, the, uh, again, the biblical story is a very Jerusalem, Israel, and Middle Eastern-centered story, uh, but clearly these nations will play a role in the days ahead. They're simply too significant to be ignored. As you say, it's, it's the, uh, the end times narrative is, is sort of Middle Eastern-centric, but what will be happening in the rest of the world during you know, the, the reign of the Antichrist, the three and a half years before the, the Second Coming. What's going on, for example, here in North America? We, we hear, we read about, uh, you know, the mark of the beast, and you will not be able to buy or sell without the mark of the beast. Sort that out for us. Yeah, well, you know, there's a few verses in the Bible that seem to indicate that the mark of the beast will be absolutely global. Um, the problem is the Bible frequently, Middle Eastern language is, is very common for, for it to use hyperbole, and the Bible itself uses hyperbole. You know, it talks about how the Roman Empire controlled the whole world. You know, in those days, a command went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole world should be taken a census of. Well, we know it wasn't the whole world. It was just the Roman Empire. And uh, you know, multiple, multiple examples that we could point to. So, you know, because of the fact that the Antichrist will have nations that he will be going to war with until the very end, Daniel 9.27 says, Wars are decreed until the end. The presence of wars is proof that there are, there are resistor militaries and thus resistor governments. And so I think the mark of the beast will be uh, found in, in various nations throughout the world. I'm not confident that every single nation and every single person on the earth will be forced to either take it or die. I think there's going to be pockets of resistance throughout the nations. And I think outside of the biblical world, it's going to look different in every nation. You know, I think there'll be plenty of places to get away, and you know, whether it be Siberia or Canada or you know, different parts of the United States. And ultimately, we don't know. I mean, we really don't know. I, I was speaking with an individual just recently. He claims that he's had clear visions of Iran and Russia working together to take out the United States along with various South American nations. He's convinced that there's going to be chemical warfare and an EM, multiple EMP attacks on the United States and, and an actual ground invasion of large parts of the country. Now, was that a vision from God? You know, we don't know, but I think if, you know, if, we're, if we're believers, we need to be praying and interceding and crying out for mercy for our nations, no matter where we live. Um, but until that time comes, you know, we really don't know. Of course, we need to be prepared for all things. Are, are there any clues, or do you have any uh, uh, idea what this mark of the beast, what form it may take? Are we talking about biometrics, or, or what, what do you think it, 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 this mark of the beast might be? You know, it could be any number of things, and, and people have certainly looked at the various emerging technologies um, to talk about, you know, everyone will be forced to take this. Uh, without which they cannot buy or sell. But it may be something much simpler. When we look at Islamic Sharia law, um, we see that you know once the caliphate is established and people live under that Islamic law, it is the law of the land. And if you're a non-Muslim, you are subject to every form of persecution. And when you really look at the biblical story, it, the, the Bible says whoever takes the mark of the beast goes to hell. Well, you know, the mark of the beast is not some uh, loophole in the system. You know, people go to hell because they reject 
the free offer of God in Jesus Christ. If they accept that, they go to heaven. This is not some loophole. It's not like a, a Nerf tag, you know, football game. If, if you, you know, they can pin you down and give you the mark of the beast and whoop, you're going to hell. Um, it clearly must be some form of a creedal issue. It must be a a statement of faith, if you will, an identification with a religious system uh, that causes someone to go to hell. And so personally, I look at the Shahada of Islam, which says there is no God other than Allah, and Muhammad is the final messenger of Allah, which perfectly fulfills the description of the theology of the Antichrist as described in 1 John chapter 2. It says this is the spirit of the Antichrist, it's an, he denies the Father, and he denies the Son. And so I look at the Shahada, uh, the Creed of Islam, you see people wearing it on their headbands throughout the radical groups, as probably the closest thing to the Mark of the Beast uh, that we can look at in, You know, at this time. I think at that time there will be probably a little bit more to it, uh, and it will be clear at that time, but I don't think it's necessarily going to be a retinal scan or... You know, something that I don't think it has to be that far out. It certainly could, but I don't think it has to. Uh, if we could just take a couple minutes and, 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 and talk about uh, the, the plight of Iraqi Christians uh, right now uh, who, who lived and worshipped in places like Mosul in, uh, in northern Iraq, or in Iraq rather, for 2,000 years. It's one of the oldest Christian communities anywhere, uh, driven out, uh, be, you know, being slaughtered by, by ISIS. Uh, the... Um, the Assyrian Christians, the Chaldeans, and Syriac Catholics, and so forth. Talk to me a little bit about what's going on over there. Yeah, and I'm not sure if you know, I actually just came back from northern Iraq. We went to uh, visit the refugee camps. So when you're looking you know, at a map of northern Iraq, Mosul, uh, that's ancient Nineveh, by the way, pretty much right there in the heart of northern Iraq, uh, that is the, the heart of the, the stronghold of ISIS, in that region, and just a little bit to the uh, southeast is the city of Erbil, and uh, that's about, I want to say, about 40 miles uh, away from Mosul. So we flew into the city of Erbil, which is fairly stable right now. This is controlled by the Kurds, the Iraqi Kurds in the north. And, um, and so in the city of Erbil, there's a massive mall that was under construction, and they never quite finished it, about four floors of just open concrete, uh, you know, building. And so as the Iraqi Christians had to flee ISIS, you know, they came to the Kurdish areas where, you know, ISIS didn't control. And so they've turned that thing into a giant, uh, sort of an open-air hotel with just little sheetrock walls. They have kerosene heaters. And, you know, they're just living this this life of day-to-day relying on the donations of various peoples around the world. and okay. with Joel, sorry, really I have to jump in here. I apologize. We'll take another time out. We'll continue to talk about the, the plight of the, the Assyrian Christians on the other side. Joel Richardson with us here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Peering into the shadows where the truth often hides. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Passcodes, personal identification numbers, social insurance numbers. If they make you wonder how private they are, here's two more numbers. 
416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Before we get back to our conversation with Joel Richardson about the end times, it's time for our weekly Follow the Truth trivia question and your chance to win a pair of tickets to my live stage event, Follow the Truth 2. The phone lines are now open at 416-360-0740 and 1-866-740-4740. Again, phone lines now open at 416-360-0740 and 1-866-740-4740. Tim will take the seventh correct caller. Here's your question. One of the featured speakers at Follow the Truth 2 is documentary filmmaker Ali Siadatan. He's been on this program a number of times. Ali Siadatan, what is the subject of Ali's upcoming presentation at Follow the Truth 2? Again, be the seventh caller through with the correct answer to win a pair of tickets to Follow the Truth 2. The question is, what is the subject of Ali Siadatan's upcoming presentation at Follow the Truth 2? Follow the Truth 2, my live stage event happening the evening of Sunday, April the 26th at the Regent Theatre in Oshawa. For more information, visit followthetruth.tv or call the box office at 905-721-3399. We're back with Joel Richardson. Joel, we were talking about the plight of Assyrian Christians uh, in, 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 uh, in northern Iraq. You were talking about how they've been... Uh, seeking shelter in this kind of this ramshackle um, mall in an area that's under the under Kurdish control. Yeah, so that's in the city of Rabil, and, you know, just, I mean, we sat with them, we prayed with them, but, you know, you just have all of these Christians, they, they lived in these cities, they had homes, they had businesses. We sat with a man named Jamil, he owned a, a manufacturing plant, and now here he is in his 60s, he's living in a, you know, a, a little box with his family, and there's no jobs, and, and, you know, so they have no idea of what their future is going to hold. It's just, you know, it truly is a devastating situation. And, you know, it's not only the Christians. We visited with Muslims that weren't going along with the ISIS program, and, and their lives equally devastated. In the north, we're up close to the border of Iran. There's the Yazidis. They're part of this sort of strange, ancient, dualistic religion. And, I mean, just living in the mud, camping outside and below 30 degrees at night and um if if ever we've got over two million displaced peoples if there's ever an opportunity for the church to be the church is is right now in the nation of uh the, the northern areas of iraq all right uh yeah it's it's a it's just a horror show uh over there and i i disheartened uh, here in canada uh the, uh, the conservative government here wants to, uh, you know, to step up uh, our contribution in airstrikes, extend those airstrikes into Syria and so forth, and uh, uh, not getting much support from the other uh, political parties, but uh, they have a majority, so it, that, that will go through. But what would, you want to, what would you say to people out there who would say, well, that's not our fight? Well, I mean, in terms of fighting ISIS, I think it's the responsibility of all people, um, uh, you know, of... of that have have moral standards to stand up for the oppressed, the forgotten, the afflicted, the needy, and you know there's different geopolitical solutions being offered. Personally, I think 
we very cautiously should be arming the Kurds, but unfortunately because of politics, John McCain and Obama, they've been talking about wanting to arm the Free Syrian Army. I think the Kurds are the greatest uh, friends of the West right now. In fact, the Kurds have a saying, the Kurds have no friends but the mountains. And, you know, when, when I was there as an American, and this is a rarity in the Middle East, in every market that I went to, the Kurds, if I wanted a piece of fruit or a piece of bread, they refused to take money. They would give it, they would give it to me because they are so happy that the Americans and the Western uh, allies are, are actually being friends with them. They're so used to being abused by the Arabs, by the Turks, by the Persians, by peoples throughout history. And uh, I think there's an opportunity right now with the Kurds to arm them, to supply them, and continue to... Uh, to you know, bomb the various ISIS uh, strongholds. We're going to take another break here, and in just a minute, let's get the conversation going now, and then we'll we'll pick it up on the other side. But let's talk about some of the other uh, the other prophetic signs uh, that we are approaching the end times. Well, probably the biggest looming one is the rebuilding of the Jewish Temple. Now, I believe that will come out of a period again of some sort of an agreement with a regional leader in Israel. Um, and there are, in fact, some profound signs uh, of the temple being rebuilt. I've talked to Muslim leaders that want to see the Jewish temple rebuilt. I've talked to leaders of the Orthodox Jewish community in Israel who actually want to convert the Dome of the Rock on the Temple Mount into the Jewish temple. And, uh, you know, a lot of different ideas that a lot of people have never thought would be possible, uh, but they're being discussed right now. And uh, it doesn't you know, necessarily mean that the mosque needs to be bombed or hit with a comet or something crazy. Uh, there's some solutions, options out there that are a little bit more realistic um, than many people have considered in the past. Has the, has the, uh, I've read reports where the, the Holy Temple altar has already uh, been built. Maybe we can uh, talk about that as well when we come back. Joel Richardson, my guest, you're on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Joel Richardson is with us. Uh, what about the uh, the Holy Temple altar? Has uh, There are reports that that has already been built, that, that they are sort of, you know, slowly assembling some of the component parts of, of, the, uh, of the Third Temple. Is that true, that story? Yeah, you know, you've got this group, the uh, the Temple uh, the Temple Faithful Institute, or the Temple Institute there in Jerusalem, and they've been doing all sorts of things for years, building all sorts of utensils and you know the altar, and they're 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 very mobile. I mean, they are prepared uh, if given permission to bring these things up onto the Temple Mount and begin sacrifices. They don't even need 
the the temple itself. The, you know, the first thing they want to do is is carry out what's called the um, the Corbin Pesach. That's the where they uh, slaughter the goat, or I'm not sure if it's a goat or a lamb. Uh, it may be the uh, the scapegoat uh, that they that they sacrifice uh, on the Day of Atonement. I mean, these are some of the the initial steps that their the Orthodox Jewish community wants to carry out. Um, again, you know, when you look at the political situation, it seems like an impossibility right now. Such profound resistance from the Palestinians to any Jewish participation or prayers, even mere prayers on the Temple Mount. Uh, you know, last year I interviewed Rabbi Yehuda Glick. He's the uh, the very prominent red-headed uh, Temple Mount activist that goes up there and tries to bring Jews up onto the Temple. Well, he was the target of an assassination attempt. Uh, just a, a few months back now, uh, he was actually shot point-blank four times um, and, and uh, miraculously survived. He, I mean, he was shot in the neck, in the chest, in the stomach, and in the hand, and he made a, a miraculously quick recovery, and I'm sure he'll be right back up on the Temple Mount probably fairly soon, but he's just been working to allow Jews to get up there and pray. And, uh, and and simply because of that, that 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 rage and that hatred from the Palestinians, you know, they 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 sought to snuff his life out. <clears throat> so it seems like an impossibility. But you know, again, it seemed like an impossibility that the Jewish people who would reestablish themselves as a nation, that Hebrew, the ancient language, would be uh, rebirthed into the earth, become uh, spoken by millions of people. And so I think when we look at the scriptures, what will take place is in agreement where my guess is it will be a you know a two-state solution with the concessions that the city of Jerusalem including the Temple Mount will be shared by both sides and it's going to require some changes uh, on both sides both sides will be sort of forced into it and I think that we're going to see some major regional shakeups as a result of some wars that will lead to both sides being willing to to make the concessions necessary uh, to see that happen. Um, I, I want to talk a, a little bit a little bit about the the characteristics of the the Antichrist, uh, and um, you know it says things like you know that uh, he will survive a mortal head wound, and uh, uh, talk to me a little bit about that, for example. That that's always intrigued me. What does that mean? Yeah, well, it actually says that the beast. Uh, will suffer a fatal head wound and come back. Now, the challenge with this is that the motif, the symbol of the beast in the book of Revelation, comes from Daniel chapter 7, where you have four beasts. Well, the beasts there, they, they represent an empire. They represent four different empires, but yea, also the emperor. You know, kingdoms, yea, kings. So it's both an individual, but also an empire. And so in one sense, this, this fatal head wound of the beast, it could simply be the, the, the seeming death of an empire that then comes back and is raised to life, or it could be an actual head wound and a false resurrection of a specific individual in the days ahead, or it could be both. Um, now, I begin with the idea that it will clearly be the revival of an empire, uh, because when you look at Revelation 17, it speaks of the seventh empire is coming back as an eighth. Personally, I believe that this is the, um, the death of the Islamic Caliphate that controlled the Middle East for 1,400 years. It culminated with the Ottoman Caliphate, the Ottoman Empire, 
and that was abolished. The head of the beast was cut off. The office of caliph, that's the, the, the pope, president, and general of the Islamic world, if you will, uh, that, that was cut off in 1923, 1924 uh, by Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, and I believe we're seeing the, the beginning stages of the, the rebirth, the resurrection of that empire right now, uh, again, which will, will fully take place after some of these wars pan out in the Middle East. Um, and then the leader of that empire very well could uh, undergo some sort of a fatal head wound, and there could be, I mean, clearly the false prophet it says we'll carry out lying signs and wonders to deceive the whole world. And so that's something that we very well uh, could see. Uh, has there been more than more than one Antichrist? For example, some people see Hitler as, one of, uh, as an Antichrist. Others say Saddam Hussein was an Antichrist. Some even you know, mention Napoleon or Kaiser Wilhelm. I mean, the lists go on and on. Stalin. Uh, are there more, is there more than one Antichrist? Yeah, um, you know, of course, the Bible says there are many, many antichrists, even from the very beginning, but yet there is one antichrist. So yes, there are many antichrists, uh, little antichrists, but there is one final man of sin, the son of perdition, uh, which is why I made the joke that it's Hillary Clinton. <laughs> oh, <gee. laughs> Clearly not the man of sin, but um, uh, though, though having many of the characteristics, but... Um, but nevertheless, there will be an individual, and so yes, you know, you could say Hitler or any of these individuals in history have been types or foreshadows. The greatest of which, of course, was Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, the um, second-century Seleucid rule, uh, king of the Seleucid Empire. Now, this is an, uh, something that has always perplexed me, Joel, and perhaps you can sort this out for me. The Antichrist has to convince you know, the world that he is, or tries to convince, or manages to convince the world that he is the Messiah. He is the Messiah uh, for the Jews. He is, uh, he is the Messiah for Christians. He is the, 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 the Al-Mahdi for, the, for Muslims. He is the, um, is it the compassionate Buddha for, for the Buddhists. How does one figure manage to convince all of these uh, different religious groups that he is their Savior, their Messiah? Uh, I don't think he has to at all. I think it's an assumption that people have read into the scriptures based on the hyperbole that every single person in the world will all submit to him. Um, I think the problem with that is that if, if he were all those things, the Muslims would never submit to him. Because, you know, Islam is clearly uh, resistant to all these other religions. So it, it's there's no scenario that you could put out there that would work. And so they would not submit to him, yet the Muslims are the nations that surround Israel. So clearly it has to be a savior figure that will appeal to the Muslim world above everyone else. I don't believe that he'll be viewed as the Messiah of Israel. In fact, I think, as I said, the clearest, most significant type of the Antichrist in all of Scripture is Antiochus Epiphanes. And he was simply an evil, demonized Gentile ruler that uh, managed to uh, invade the land of Israel and, and destroy the Jewish temple. And so whether we're looking at Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the various Roman Caesars, Antiochus Epiphanes, they're all Gentile rulers. And the primary way that Satan throughout history has affected his purposes in the earth has been through pagan empires. And I believe in the last days it will be the, it will be the same. Now, 
the scriptures do say that they will trust this individual. He will be an individual that will be able to gain enough political capital to engage in a some sort of an agreement, a covenant with Israel, whereby they will trust his promises. It says that he will conquer marvelously through peace, that he will invade um, the various lands when they are at ease. He is a profound deceiver, but I don't believe that he'll be viewed as the Jewish Messiah or the, you know, the Buddha or the, the Maitreya or you know, any of these other things. I believe the end times will be far more messy, far more chaotic than we often would like to imagine and multitudes in the valley of decision, and those of us that have clarity on the gospel will be declaring the way and the one way to the truth. And, um, you know, I think there'll be resistors of all different stripes throughout the earth. And, uh, in fact, it speaks of, of resistors even in the last days that are neither, neither uh, reprobate nor, nor are they believers. Where, where do you stand on the uh, is a very contentious issue, and that is the, the rapture, that there will, you know, believing Christians will be spared the tribulation, they will be raptured uh, in, into heaven. There are a number of Christians who do not uh, subscribe to that idea, and, and others that do. What, what, what do you, where do you stand on that? Well, I mean, there clearly is a rapture. The question is, when does it take place? And, you know, based on several verses, but I mean, probably one of the clearest ones is Matthew 24, verse 29, and then moving forward, Jesus makes it very clear that the rapture takes place after the tribulation. After the tribulation, but before the wrath of God is poured out on the nations, and so I believe it takes place when he returns. I believe that we will, uh, as his people, have the opportunity to bear witness to the nations um, and, and imitate Jesus and bear the cross and lay down our lives, potentially in martyrdom in those last days. Um, I don't believe there's any biblical evidence. There's not a single verse in the Bible that points to the rapture taking place before the tribulation. Uh, and finally, Joel, uh, a timeline here. I mean, how, how close are we, in your estimation, uh, to the end times beginning, unraveling? Um, you know, this is difficult. I think sometimes you have, we have a clear picture of, of the, the, the timeline of events, but it's as though it's written on a, a rubber band, and then the Lord kind of stretches a little here and there. But I believe that we, I mean, even events that, that the general landscape of the last days, as described by the prophets, is profoundly coming together. And I don't say that in a sensational, hyped-up way. Um, I, you know, I think over the next several years, we're going to see profound events come together. And, you know, I'll just say it this way. If we reach 2040 and Jesus has not returned, I would be absolutely shocked. And, you know, I'll make a joke, but it's a fairly valid point, which is, you know, I was reading an article recently about how they're, they're going to have the ability to do head transplants. Yes. They're going to have artificial intelligence. You know, I mean, there's so many crazy things that we're about to achieve technology-wise that if he doesn't return soon, it is going to get awfully weird. You know, it's going to be Terminator, Transformers, you know, everything combined. And I really just don't think he's going to let it get that far. Joel, a great pleasure um, spending some time with you. Thank you so much for this. Thanks for having me on, Richard. Joel Richardson. All right.
The website for The Conspiracy Show is www.richardserrett.com. Be sure to say hi on uh, Twitter, at Richard Serrett, and follow. And as always, follow the truth.
Auto Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Thanks for inviting me into your home. Happy Easter and a blessed Passover. Remarkable, this most recent blood moon, which is the third in the four blood moons that are coming our way or that have come our way, known as the Tetrad, that it... What's remarkable is that it happened over Passover, of course. Uh, these blood moons are all uh, occurring seniously on Jewish high holidays. Now, when the Hebrews marked their door with lamb's blood, which is uh, what Passover is about, the Hebrew word for blood is dam or dam. The numeric value for dam is four. The Hebrew word for door, which is spelled D-A-L-E-T, Dalet or Dalet. Again, numerically, it represents four. So blood is four, door is four, Passover this year falling on the falling on the fourth month of the fourth day, and get this: this blood moon, this lunar eclipse, was the shortest in duration so far this century, and it lasted. Wait for it: four minutes, forty-four seconds. Uh, we have a controversial and somewhat disturbing program coming up this hour. At the bottom of the hour, I'll be joined by a gentleman who's been using his smartphone camera equipped with a special filter and pointing it at the sun and hitting record. And what has been recording these last several months is, well, kind of bizarre. He's been doing this for several months, as I say, and the object that is clearly visible as a large dot in the upper left-hand portion of the sun is getting larger and it appears to be heading our way. And we've posted that video uh, at richardserrett.com in the, uh, the slide carousel. Robert Dunn believes this object is the legendary Planet X, or Nibiru. For those of you familiar with the writings of the late Zachariah Sitchin, you'll be familiar with Planet X and its 3,600-year elliptical orbit. And that according to legend, every time this massive celestial body swings by our corner of the galactic neighborhood, it causes major cataclysmic events here on Earth. Before that, the rumors, innuendo, speculation, and conspiracy theories continue to fly in connection with the tragic crash of the German Wings aircraft in the French Alps uh, a few weeks ago that killed all 150 people on board. The co-pilot... Andres Lubitz has been essentially tried and convicted in a heinous murder-suicide, locking the pilot out of the cockpit and steering the Airbus A320 into the ground. But there are a number of inconsistencies at variance with the official narrative, which has been stitched together largely, we are told, almost entirely on the contents of a badly damaged flight voice recorder. Researcher George Freund has an alternative version of those tragic events, and although it's very controversial and speculative, no more so than the official version, perhaps, and he joins us right now. Hey, George, how are you? Oh, good, thanks. Thanks for being with us. And thank you, Richard, for having me aboard. So many inconsistencies and odd things I find uh, regarding this German Wings Flight 9525 that crashed uh, back on, on March the 24th. I want to start with the um, the idea that uh, somehow, Andreas Lubitz managed to lock the pilot out of the cockpit. Now, tell me about the um, the construction uh, or the uh, 
the, the components and, and so forth of the Airbus 320, the A320. Are there not fail-safes that would prevent something like that? How could a pilot or a co-pilot lock somebody out of the, out of the cockpit? Well, there is a control mechanism in the Airbus. So basically we have two panels. There's a panel in the cockpit and a panel in the body of the aircraft. They're like a numbered keypad like you'd see in almost any security arrangement. And the, uh, the pilot would leave and the other pilot would be in the cockpit and uh, he has an override switch as well. So when uh, you come back, you punch in your number, the pilot that's in the cockpit can hit the override button and stop you from accessing the cockpit directly. And uh, there is a timer mechanism in the Airbus A320 that allows uh, you know, anywhere from two minutes up to, uh, you know, I believe it's seven or eight minutes to delay the entry. But, uh, you know, it could be a battle of wits between one and the other to lock you out. Uh, but uh, I get the feeling per primarily that, uh, you know, we're just being fed a red herring about the story about trying to gain access to the cockpit. Let me just see if I understand this. So there is a, there is a keyboard, or a keypad rather, on uh, inside the cockpit and then inside the, uh, on the other side of the cockpit door. So if this pilot were locked out, the first thing he would do would, would be to enter his code into the keypad. But the pilot, the, rather the co-pilot, in this case Andreas Lubitz, would have an override to prevent the pilot from getting in. But what do you, so, so further to that then, what are you saying? That, 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 that he could only delay the pilot's entry for two to seven minutes and then... The way it's made, yes, it's a, it's a delay factor. But he could, he could presumably keep delaying the pilot from entering? So, I mean, is it conceivable that he, that he locked him out? It's possible he could lock him out, but it, uh, as I understand it, it's something that could only happen uh, once, that it's, it's a delay factor. There's also supposed to be a, uh, you know, that the captain of the plane has a key as well to get around the electrical, technical. So he has a key. So last resort, he has a key that would override the keypad and, and everything else. Only the pilot would have that. Yes. Now, have you been able to confirm this with with your sources that this is in fact the case with the with the uh, the Airbus A320? Uh that's the general operating procedure with these aircraft, you know, German wings could do something slightly different, but uh you know, I get the feeling most of this story about the cockpit and everything else is a complete and total red herring because we have multiple stories they've changed as the situation has progressed and uh I have very little confidence that uh, we're getting the truth at all in this uh, this manufacture. Uh, and initially, we were told that the uh, the pilot, in a desperate attempt to gain access to the cockpit, he uh, he began banging on the door with an axe. Now, where would he get an axe? Well, unfortunately, that's what proves or shows that the story's full of holes, is because the axe is in the cockpit. So, <laughs> unless he took it to the bathroom with him. And uh, so when, when we get, uh, you know, a propaganda story, pretty much like we're getting with this air, you know, German wing story, uh, it's, it's all the lies, the new lies for old lies or worse. Uh, so what uh, some of the German media have done is change the axe story now to become a crowbar. And, uh, well, generally, 
they don't have anything like that on an aircraft either. They don't allow anything that can be used as a weapon or a potential weapon to be in the in the public body of the aircraft. Certainly post 9-11. Exactly. So, you know, Air Canada pilots that I know and, and such like that, they take their nail clippers away and then give them the fire axe. <laughs> exactly, right. Uh, or uh, knives and forks and all the booze you can drink. Uh, but So you're saying that, that an Airbus, an A320 Airbus, would be equipped with an axe, but that axe is, in fact, stored in the cockpit. That's standard procedure? Correct. For safety and security reasons, it's a fire axe for the crew to use uh, so that they can protect uh, themselves. And they wouldn't have a crowbar. I mean, I I, I, I wouldn't no. imagine why they would ha they would need a crow. Well, I suppose if they wanted to pry open uh, an emergency door or something like that, is it is it not possible that they had a crowbar? Uh, I I find that very hard to believe. I think most of this is manufactured narrative, and uh, I don't see that they would have a crowbar. All right, let's talk about the uh, the co-pilot, 27-year-old Andreas Lubitz. Uh, we are being told that he had been declared unfit to work. He was hiding. Uh, this this mental illness from his employers. What do you hear? What do you know about that? I mean, is there any substance to that story? It's an old story. It sounds like uh, you know some time ago, when he was uh, you know twenty twenty one years old when he started to get into this sort of thing, he did have a break in his training and he did take some psychiatric leave, and uh, you know he may have been under the care of a physician or a psychiatrist. And it sounds like it's an old hat story, and uh, to me it sounds like it's something that's being manufactured to turn him into the villain because the other stories didn't fly. And, uh, you know, we had three distinct stories start out with this crash. The first was the, uh, the fighter jets, and then we had a story about uh, uh, an explosion in the sky that matched first right up and then it changed into the plane had mechanical faults and then when it was determined the mechanical faults were with the landing gear then a kamikaze pilot doesn't need landing gear so that story changed and then it focused on the pilot so for when it first happened uh, within a reasonable period of time german wings pilots didn't want to fly because they were concerned about the safety features on the plane that that plane and its sister plane had issues with the windscreen and uh, you know later it was determined that the specific error with that aircraft was the landing gear and then the story just died and it was changed into Andreas Lubitz that uh, he has mental health problems and uh, he purposely crashed the plane but the only evidence they had was the uh, you know if they even had that was the cockpit cockpit voice recorder saying that he was breathing that was the only thing that uh, came out of this, is he was breathing, and the rest is narrative that's been manufactured and added and, and put into place. So that leaves a lot, uh, you know, for conjecture, in my opinion. Uh, well, it is curious that, uh, not that this is, you know, uh, necessarily that compelling of a, a, a piece of evidence, but there was no suicide note, as Correct. far as we were aware. And uh, one would presume, I mean, he, was, he had a girlfriend, he had family that would think he might leave something behind, although that doesn't necessarily mean anything, or does it? Well, I think it means a lot. Like, if you were uh, at a point in time where, you know, you're considering ending your life, 
you know, I find it hard to believe that in the confines of this cockpit that, uh, you know, the, the guy wouldn't have screamed out or said something. If this is such a burning desire that his life is ruined or he's holding someone responsible for something, that uh, that he wouldn't scream. And, uh, you know, so if you're trying to allude that uh, he was an Islamic extremist, that on the way down he's going, Allah, Akbar, or he's yelling at the airline or whoever he feels is uh, is, you know, destroying his life uh, that he would call out and that didn't happen when we go through all the detail I've gone through a lot of the uh, the media reports on this gentleman and everyone who knew him personally one up said he was a decent guy happy liked flying they had their names attached to the story their photographs frequently and uh, you know that's first-hand evidence the people who have been alleging in the beginning that uh, he was, you know, off the wall or something, they're anonymous sources, and frequently the anonymous source is repeating hearsay, and in some cases double hearsay, to say that someone said this, and they told somebody else, and now I'm telling you that he's crazy. But, you know, there's no name attached uh, to compare with the people that actually did know him and say that they have, uh, you know, fine recollection of him being like one of the last pilots that worked with him said you know he was a very happy man he was looking forward to uh, everything that was going on and this doesn't seem to jive with uh, the story we're getting George Freund is uh, with us uh, independent researcher and uh, of course well known for his uh, podcast conspiracy cafe we're talking about the tragic German wings air crash killing all 150 people aboard uh, back on March the 24th uh, coming up on a break here, but uh, when we, on the other side, I'd, I'd like to talk about the debris field, which is, well, it's reminiscent uh, of the uh, the debris field of um, uh, another plane that uh, hit the ground during 9-11. And uh, I don't know, to me, that just screams out as, a, it's just a red flag, and I'll get your take on that as well, uh, uh, George. But um, as we head into the break, Let's just let's begin that conversation. And, Definitely. Uh, yeah. So w w the, the debris field. Ex describe it to me. It's all over. It's a massive debris field. It's one square mile. Now we are being told, and I'll start from one of the first stories that came out from a French official, Ségolène Royal. Okay. Let me just stop you there. I'm, I am getting the signal for a break. So we'll we'll come back and we'll talk about the debris field. George Freund here talking about the German wings crash right here. On the conspiracy show. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. And we are back with George Freund. Okay, the debris field. One of the uh, first releases from the French government came from an official named Ségolène Royal, 
and he described at 10.30 the pilots were chatting away in conversation, and at 10.31, when contact was lost, the plane nose dived into the ground. And uh, so that's one of the first stories that uh, comes up that fits with the fact fighter jets were reported next to the plane. There was an explosion in the air. Now we have a new story where the pilot went to the washroom and the co-pilot took over and he turned the controls into uh, an autopilot controlled descent, although it was at an oblique angle, and uh, the plane crashed into the ground. Now you have a very large jumbo jet crashing into the ground. There should be a big hole in the ground. Uh, you know, in the uh, Moulton air crash here in Toronto in the 70s, that was something I was involved in for my disaster planning training. The, you know, the nose of that plane was 20 feet underground, and uh, it was only crashing at about 140 miles an hour. This one's a heavier plane crashing at 400 miles an hour. There should be one massive hole in the ground, and a good part of the plane embedded into the ground. This is spread out over such a large area, it implies that the plane actually came apart in the air and fell in pieces because we have two distinct ridges in the in these mountains and refuse from the plane is on either side of, of these uh, mountain ridges. So and you know how did these parts jump over the cliff to go to the other side? They had to fall that way. One of the other things would be the jet fuel. If the plane landed intact uh, in this suicide attempt, then one would reasonably expect that it would have caught fire and the jet fuel would have exploded because the, you know, the fuel tanks would have been intact until they hit the ground. There was no massive fireball or explosion uh, on the ground at all, just little pockets of smoke from uh, isolated fires, but uh, nothing that would be indicative of a major crash into the ground. So uh, the, the physical scene matches the first story. It doesn't match the second story. Yeah, that's where it mirrors Flight 93, the, uh, the infamous Let's Roll flight that um, many um, uh, people now believe was, in fact, shot down, uh, that it wasn't, you know, that it didn't crash. Uh, again, a similar debris field. Oh, exactly. There's no way you can hide that. That's something you can see with your own eyes. And, uh, you know, it's something I was taught since I was a small child by my grandfather is to think for yourself, not to let other people do your thinking for you. And one of the big errors with mass media is sometimes they get on to something and no one really thinks or analyzes what's right before your eyes and, uh, and judges it for what it is. So we can see clearly with this massive debris field that we're dealing with a, a plane that had come apart in the sky and fell in many, many pieces over a very broad area. Um, you know, I'd like to see, although I haven't come across uh, any photographs uh, flat up, is the engines. That would probably answer a lot, uh, to, because they're so large and heavy. If they weren't near the body of, uh, you know, the large body of, of wreckage, that they fell a couple of miles away, <laughs> then that's, you know, perfect evidence that the plane came apart in the sky and the engines, uh, you know, came down before the rest. Uh, you mentioned the, the two NATO fighter jets. These were Italian planes, were they not? I'm not too sure of the nationality. I've heard some people say French, you know, I, uh, you're saying Italian. But, uh, you know, there's no mistake the sound of the planes and the way they maneuver that you're dealing with you know, modern fighter jets. 
and uh, they were reported by the first witnesses on the scene, and uh, those witnesses also reported an explosion, which they described as dynamite. So, you know, something that uh, would be, you know, like a, an explosive material as opposed to, uh, you know, maybe an accidental fuel explosion or something like that, something more of a military-style hardware. And those reports just stopped, and, uh, you know, the story changed and morphed into a new format. And that just reeks of some sort of intelligence operation of massaging the facts with a cover story to cover up perhaps the execution of one of the passengers on the plane who was, you know, very, very high up in the geospatial satellite program with the United States military working for Bose Allen Hamilton, the same company Mr. Snowden worked for. Her name was Yvonne Selke. You've confirmed that on the... Uh, the, the the uh, passenger manifest uh, that, that that she was aboard that plane. Yvonne oh, Selke. Yes. Her obituary is well covered. They don't get into too many details about her. They deal with her daughter, who was a university graduate and uh, in her twenties. They mention her mostly, and they just mention specifically that she worked for Bose Allen Hamilton on this program. And uh, but that is a very important program with the world in flux between NATO and Russia. Uh, you know, jockeying for position and all these war drills they're doing. If one side could take out the other side's satellites or a serious part of their technology, they would have a serious one-up to consider a first strike in any type of conflict. So you're saying that that uh, they killed 150 people as a sort of a cover story to get to Yvonne Selke of Bose uh, Allen Hamilton. Uh, and who is... I mean, let, let me just back up here for a moment before we talk about who. Wouldn't it be... You know, easier just to, I don't know, fix her brakes, slip something into her drink, take her out, uh, you know, in a vehicle. Why would they take out 150 people? Because there's no super ability to come up with a motive because you make it look like an accident. And uh, it's an old trick, actually. One, as I was researching the history of, uh, of some of the things around uh, things like that, Nero did something like this to kill his mother, Agrippina the Younger by sabotaging a boat she was going to be on so it would sink with massive loss of life. If you just kill one person, then people will be suspicious to say that it's a possible murder and there could be a motive. When you have a, a multiple casualty event, then that's a different thing, especially if there's a rational explanation that would say it was an accident or, in this case, a, a murder, but a murder pulled off by a suicidal co-pilot. Uh, who's being painted as, you know, the most evil man in the world in his uh, Orwellian so many minutes of hate that uh, are being carried on. But no evidence has been provided to say that specifically at the time when he was at these controls that he was behaving in this manner. They just, the best they had is he was breathing. And one of the other, you know, terrible just dichotomies of news is the fact that these black box memory uh, you know, data recorders were reported at first in the New York Times as one was uh, unusable through damage and the other one was missing its data card. So where do we get this information then? If one doesn't have a data card and the other one's damaged and unusable, then where is all this information coming out? Is, is it a fiction story from beginning to end being written by, uh, you know, people who are bad script writers? The, that doesn't make sense. So, you know, this was, uh, you can't get a more reputable newspaper, I guess, than the New York Times reporting that uh, there were serious errors and flaws in, in these recorders, and yet these people seem to have very detailed information coming from something that they say came from these data recorders. 
It doesn't make sense unless it's just being made up as a cover story. And most everything we're starting to see is heading in that general direction. One other story that isn't being reported much at all was just by luck. I was reading the Australian media, and I found it in an English-language newspaper in Australia, is a Kurdish football team backed out at the last minute and didn't get on the plane. And that would be, to me, in the light of the information going on here, a newsworthy story to say, you know, hey, look at this, lucky guys, right? Right. But what are the Kurds, really? They're a, a, a proxy military fighting in the Middle East under the auspices of uh, the CIA, perhaps, the American military. And did word get around, maybe, that something was going to happen and somebody tipped off uh, guys that they like and as sporting heroes or fellow countrymen and say, you know, hint, hint, don't take this plane. Not today. And uh, that they... they they booked off the plane and uh, found out their transportation arrangements. So that, that just screams. It also screams by silence. Is why isn't it a big story in the United States or England or Canada that these miracle guys missed the flight? Why target I Yvonne Selkie? Who would have targeted her? If she was running away to possibly give information to a foreign power like Russia that could tip the scale, in any type of future conflict between Russia and change the technology gap to give one a, an advantage over the other one, uh, I don't think the Americans are going to allow any more Snowdens. And, uh, you know, it's one thing just to get muckraked over your dirty laundry, but to uh, actually have someone who could take intelligence and give it to a hostile power or potential hostile power, uh, I think they would do anything to stop that. And, uh, you know, even resorting to murder wouldn't slow them down. It's not like they haven't taken out many, many people in plane crashes. Well, but then if that's what, if she was, if they had it on good authority that she was going to, you know, give this kind of information to the Russians, that, that I mean, I don't know that you could compare her to Snowden. Uh, I mean, many people look to Snowden as, as a hero because he was alerting us to the fact that, you know, our civil liberties are being uh, trampled on. This is quite separate and apart from someone giving military secrets to a perceived enemy. Well, that could be under the auspices of trying to stop global thermal nuclear war, which is going to kill us all. And uh, so sometimes people who have information realize that they're being used for nefarious purposes, maybe even to orchestrate or start the war. And uh, they're saying, you know, hey, this is too much. We're not going to do this. And uh, by giving a technical advantage to, uh, uh, you know, the potential enemy is that they can deflate the plan before it gets started so that we can't go that far. And uh, I think many military people over the years have operated under circumstances like that where they've given information away not to lose but to prevent something from happening. And that could be a case, but it's not discussed. Everything's focusing on the co-pilot. And he just seems to be a complete and total red herring, and most of the evidence surrounding him has flaws, falls apart, and uh, leaves us just standing by the side of the road going, what happened? Because th this is just, uh, you know, it, it just grows and grows and grows as, as the story came online. And basically the only logic behind it is like kindergarten logic. How do you know something happened? Well, everybody says, well, based on what evidence? How would how would the a NATO pilot be convinced to fire a missile at a passenger plane carrying 150 innocent people? 
hey, that's their job, killing, and you follow orders. You know, how, you know did Lieutenant Callie uh, become too concerned about blowing away all sorts of innocent children? Did the guys who dropped bombs and all sorts of uh, targets in Vietnam worry about the non-combatants? Do we worry about the non-combatants now in other places in the Middle East that are collateral damage? One of the other sidebar stories to this is immediately uh, after it happened, the CIA relieved of duty the guy who's in charge of the drone program for the United States. And he's killed thousands of people. He's a converted Muslim. He only has a first name, Roger. Uh, there's never been pictures released, and we don't know his, his surname at all. But immediately after this happened, within two days, he was relieved of duty and assigned to something else. Uh, was he involved in uh, a program like this? Th- these are people that don't lose any sleep by killing. It really me- it might be a big thing for us because we have moral standards. But to a lot of other people, they just don't care. Well, it is all uh, very disturbing, George. Uh, last last question. Uh, we just have a few seconds here. Do you, do you think we're going to get to the bottom of this? Is any of this going to come to light? Well, we're going to get to the bottom of this because we have a desire to find the truth. And wherever it takes us, we're going to go there. And we discern between the garbage and the lies and the facts that really hold together and are backed up by the evidence that we have. If the Germans really have uh, this recording, they can play it. If they have these shredded doctor's notes, they can show it. And if they don't, then I think they're just basically shooting blanks and telling us a big fabricated story, a cover story of some sort. And uh, so we'll find the answer. Will corporate media or mainstream media ever bother to look? I doubt it very much. But that's what makes us important (laughs) and the rest of them fluff. All right, George, I I appreciate your time as always. Thank you for this. It's very disturbing. Good night. Good night. George Freud. In a democracy, we elect officials so we can sleep at night. So why are you up? 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. A couple of weeks ago, I was getting ready to go on the air at Coast to Coast AM when I received an email from a Robert Dunn of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and attached to the email was an MP4 file, or a short uh, video, taken on his smartphone camera. Robert had pointed his smartphone at the sun around midday, something he's been doing fairly frequently these last few months, and what can be seen in the video in the upper left-hand portion of the sun is a large speck. Well, seen from the earth, it's a speck, but Robert thinks in actual fact this speck is roughly four times the mass of Jupiter, the largest planet in the solar system. What could it be, if anything? Robert Dunn has a sinking feeling he knows what it is, and it's not good news. Bob Dunn, how are you? 
Good, Richard. Thanks. How are you, sir? Very well. As I was explaining off the top, the, I, I was just about to uh, to do a Coast to Coast last week, and uh, or I guess a few weeks ago, and you sent me this email with this uh, video that you took with your with your smartphone. Right. Uh, I want you to I want you to walk us through exactly how you took this footage. Uh, tell us where you were, what time of day, and so forth. Okay, let me pull that one up. Um, but I'm I'm in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I'm not sure exactly what time of day that one was. I think you said midday. Can... Midday. Yeah, midday. I've taken uh, like 74 of them uh, so far. I, I uploaded four new ones today, and. Um, what I do is I taped, uh, I think I used solar film on that one. Hang on, let me pull it up real quick. That was on March 12th, the video for March 12th, negative format. Yeah, I used a solar film on that, which I sent away for, some pro-grade astronomy uh, solar film. And I would had taken some other ones in the past previously using uh, an old computer floppy disk I cut up just tape it on the back of my cell phone. So you take this this negative film and you put it over your smartphone lens. Yeah, I tape the solar film. Because uh, you're shooting directly into the sun. Yeah, you have to, yeah. At right. least for my, for my uh, equipment anyway, uh, to really get any kind of an image. I, I shot directly at the sun, and uh, with the solar film screen in it, it's showing some uh, orbitals or other objects up there near our sun. <clears throat> Now, I started doing this back in uh, November 17th, 2014, was the first uh, images I actually got. And, and what, what uh, moved you to, to decide that you were going to point your smartphone directly at the sun and, and start uh, videoing? What, what, what urged you to do that? Well, actually, uh, I saw another guy, I think it was over in Thailand or something, at a YouTube channel, and he posted a couple of videos that uh, I think he might have mentioned using a floppy disk. I'm not sure. But anyway, he caught some images of uh, objects up near the sun, so I figured I'd give it a shot, you know. And, Expl- uh, and explain, voila. okay, we've, now we've, we're, we've posted the, uh, or we will post the video uh, to richardserrett.com up in the, uh, the slide carousel. People will just click on the image, and it'll, it'll take them to your video, uh, Bob, so they can see the video that you sent to me a couple of weeks ago. Oh, ex- okay. and uh, but for those not looking at the video right now, and we're we're going to be heading into a break in a moment here. But just uh, just tell us what they're what they're going to see. Well, you're going to see it's it's going to be a white screen because I put it on a negative format on the uh, cell phone camera. Because there's like five different uh, selections you can make. You can take with a regular regular lens, then you get the negative blue screen, brown screen, or in uh, the mono black or black screen. I had it on a negative screen. And a large dot is the sun, large blue dot, and then it's showing up a nice, uh, pretty good-sized dot up to the upper left of the sun, which, uh, in my opinion, is probably the dwarf star because that's supposed to be four times the size of Jupiter. Jupiter being the largest planet in our solar system. Correct, yeah. It's, it's either four times the size or four times the mass, but nonetheless... Okay, listen, we've got to take a... Pretty- Bob, just hold tight. We'll take a time out. We'll come back and we'll, we'll discuss uh, this. Bob Dunn joining us from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and uh, we're discussing Planet X, which he says he's captured on his smartphone. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Poking holes in the darkness... 
The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To see the light, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. And we are back with Bob Dunn from uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, sent me a, uh, a video a couple of weeks ago, uh, which he believes is Planet X, Nibiru. Now, um, this artifact uh, in the upper left-hand uh, portion of the sun, clearly visible on the smartphone video, which we've posted at right. richardserrett.com, what leads you to believe, first of all, this, this, I mean, it's a speck, really. Why, how are you able to determine that whatever it is we're looking at, planet X or otherwise, it would be four times the mass of Jupiter, our largest planet? Well, if you just compare it to the size of the sun, the sun being, you know, super large, and this dot that's showing up, it's got a pretty, pretty fair size to it. Uh, I'm just making, I'm just making a guess there. Sure. I mean, okay. I can't say for sure, but it's supposed to be a, a dwarf star with a mini solar system, with as many as seven planets, and Nibiru, Nibiru being one of the planets. <clears throat> and I've caught, I've caught as many as seven orbitals before in some of my earlier uh, captures. But, of course, since uh, everything's relative, the Earth's moving, the Sun's moving, this thing's moving, you're going to get different views on, during different times of the year. But I think I got the, the best shots back in uh, late November when I first started taking them, where you can see more objects. Now, for, for those not aware of, uh, of you know, so the, the story, the backstory of Planet X or Nibiru, those who are not familiar, for example, with the works of Zachariah Sitchin, um, explain what, what Planet X or Nibiru is. Well, like I said, it's supposed to be a mini-solar system, and Sitchin, uh, he translated some of the Sumerian texts, and came up with it, and it's also been recorded in some of the old Egyptian manuscripts and even in the Bible, and they, they called it the Destroyer, which it supposedly comes around every uh, 3,657 years in a long elliptical egg-shaped orbit uh, through our solar system. So it, it comes through the inner solar system every 3,657 years or thereabouts, and when it does, it pretty much wreaks havoc on all the planets that it comes close to. Now, according to the Bible, it's supposedly uh, we're going to see destruction like never seen before, so this this might be the worst passing yet. They call it the planet of the crossing. In other words, we cross its path, and then uh, all hell breaks loose destruction. Like, for instance, um, some of the earlier civilizations were wiped out by, I'm I'm presuming by it, like uh, Atlantis, and some of the other earlier things that just got completely buried or wiped out, or and presumably or the that that elliptical orbit, thirty six hundred years, coincides with things like the Great Flood here on Earth, and also even perhaps things like the parting of the Red Sea, 
uh, ice ages. Uh, does it have anything to do with, uh, you know, Venus is kind of an interesting uh, planetary body because it, it's, it orbits in the opposite direction of all the other planets. Uh, could that have had anything to do with a pass by by Nibiru? I'm not real sure about that one, Okay. to be honest. You mean it's retrograde orbit all the time, Venus? I believe so. Ah, uh, yeah, I'm not I'm not sure about that one, Richard. But I've just been observing this one, and it seems to be getting bigger. And then uh, me being a born-again Christian and all, I tried to figure out how it might be relevant to uh, end-time prophecies. And I, I posted a lot of uh, my conclusions underneath many of the uploads right. concerning the end-times timeline and whatnot. Now, you're saying that uh, each time you, you, you hold your smartphone up to the sun and you've got this filter, this negative film, uh, in front of your lens, and you're, hopefully you're not looking directly into the sun, uh, but you're saying that this artifact is getting larger. Yeah, I just taped some today. Well, this is um, March 29th. I guess this is going to be aired following Sunday, but I, I put up four today, and it looks like it's getting larger. There's clearly three objects up there, and they all look bigger than the last time I shot them, which was about a week ago. Now explain something to me, Bob, because this uh, is... A bit of a head scratcher. Uh, I, I just assumed that the the planet itself, Planet X, Nibiru, would pass this way. But you're saying that it's a brown dwarf, sort of leading the parade and dragging the whole solar system with it. Is how does that yeah. happen? Yeah. Well, it's like a mini solar system, man. I know it's freaky, but uh, if you're at all familiar with um, electromagnetic universe, you know we have an electric electromagnetic portal from the Earth to the Sun, and the Sun has them to some of the other planets that have magnetic fields or, or metallic cores. And uh, this dwarf star also has a, a huge electromagnetic field, and once we get close enough to it, it's going to latch on like a tractor beam to the Earth and pretty much do with it what it may. could roll it over. I got a good video under there by Zeta Talk about a 3D animation of... Uh, what's likely to ha occur when we uh, come into this thing's orbital path. But what would cause, what would cause uh, this, this brown dwarf to break free from wherever it was uh, and, and, come, and come this way? Because that would be unprecedented, right? I mean, previously, well, we, just got, we just had Nibiru passing this way. Now we've got the whole kit and caboodle, the whole nine yards. Well, actually, uh, even NASA, and they put out a lot of disinfo, they said that all the solar systems that they've um, documented are binary. 80% of them have tw two twin suns, binary solar systems. So it's really not unusual that we have uh, two suns in our solar system. Ours just happens to come around once every 3,600 years or so, because it's in this long elliptical orbit. Ah, so, so this has happened previously, not just Planet X, but the whole solar system comes this way. Yeah, they just named it Planet X. That's, that was, that's one of the disinfo things that I think NASA came up with early on when they first discovered it back in the early 80s with the IRS telescope, right. infrared telescope which has since been shut down. In other words, we can't get, get the feed from it. Well, uh, this thing can really be only seen in infrared, but now that it's up near our sun, it's catching uh, the reflection from the sun, so that's why I believe it's visible now. Well, then the question uh, is, Bob, if this is true, uh, it would be visible to hundreds, thousands perhaps of amateur astronomers all over the world, 
Why are they not screaming from the rooftop? Something wicked this way comes. Well, it's a huge cover-up, Richard. The powers that be, they don't want, uh, they don't want this info out. They want to have things continue uh, life as normal so they can keep sucking all the dollars they can off the economies and whatnot. In fact, I think that's where the, a lot of the trillions of dollars went to build their deep underground bases because they, they know what's coming, and they want to keep everyone in the dark as long as possible so that uh, they can just carry on business as usual, now, if you know what I mean. Right, right. Now, NASA has this wide-field infrared survey explorer, WISE, uh, and this, this probe uh, has found several thousand new objects much further out, other, other, uh, other planets, exoplanets, and so forth. Uh, but they are saying... And I, I, I'm, I can anticipate what you're going to say, but, but that NASA is saying the outer solar system probably does not contain a large gas planet or a small companion star. In other words, they're saying they've scanned the, uh, the entire sky with no signs of an undiscover, undiscovered planet or, or other large body in the outer reaches of the solar system. Well, of course, you know. I mean, they're, they're part of the, the cover-up. But, I mean, early on, is what intrigued me was when they had the first the Comet Elenin. You remember that? Yes. Several years ago, three years ago or so. Well, I think that was just turned out to be a big psyop. In other words, they, they put that all out there to gauge the reaction of what was going to happen. And then, of course, it also uh, worked in their favor because nothing happened. So then all these people crying from the rooftops about Comet Elenin and uh, extinction-level event and so forth. Uh, it didn't happen, so that pretty much discredited everybody. But um, is this an extinction level event, in your estimation? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, Terrell, Terrell uh, Croft, he's got a channel up, uh, Black Star Update, and he's been monitoring the earthquake frequencies and uh, every whenever this thing's in different positions, outside orbital orbital position. And, and so forth, the earthquakes have all coincided for the last couple of years. And he's got a celestial model up showing where um, the Earth is relative to this dark star, he calls it. And we're going to be crossing its orbital path come May 20th, as best as he can figure. So we're talking about, like it says in First Thessalonians, everyone's going to be saying peace and safety, and then sudden destruction is going to come. Uh, and speaking a, of earthquakes, we just had, I understand, about an hour ago, a 7.7 just north of Australia. Yeah, yeah, i just seen that. But it's, it's, it's going to be a sixth seal, in my opinion, sixth seal revelation event. The sixth trumpet. Six. The sixth trumpet. No, no, no? sixth seal. The Not... trumpets come after the seals. Okay. That's, that's why that, well, yeah, you interviewed um, that Carl guy G last week about it. Carl Gallops, yes. Carl Gallops, yeah. And in my opinion, he's just totally clueless. In fact, nobody's. Well, looking for the signs I wouldn't know about that. I wouldn't know about that. Nobody's uh, looking for the signs in the heavens. Jesus uh, made prominent mention of it in Luke 21 25 through 26. He said to watch for the signs in the heavens. Well, and uh, they've been here for a while. I mean, if you even just watch the sky, the clouds are like going across in a herky jerky manner. Our weather systems are all screwed up. The jet streams fragmented. Uh, I mean, there's something going on. All right, listen, you, uh, Bob, we, we're just about out of time. We'll, we'll, we'll check in with you again. Uh, keep sending these videos 
Okay. Most importantly, though, have you? Uh, do you have uh, maybe an, an amateur astronomer friend or, or a colleague who can take a look at that just to tell you what's going on there? Uh, no, but you know what? Google dead astronomers. There's been over a hundred teams of astronomers that yep. have died. All right. Well, you make sure you're not one of them. Stay, stay, stay safe. Stay well, my friend. Okay, Bob. Listen, we've got to go, but we will uh, check in. Keep sending those videos. All right. Thanks a lot for your, for your uh, exposure, Richard. All right. That's Bob Dunn. God bless you. That's Bob Dunn in uh, Pittsburgh, who is sending us these uh, uh, smartphone videos, which he says uh, is Planet X, a brown dwarf star carrying an entire solar system, and it's headed this way. Well, forearmed, or sorry, forewarned, forearmed. All right, that's it for us. Again, happy Easter, happy Passover. My thanks to Tim Spreen, Albert the Intern, Eric Eames the Intern, all of you for listening. Back next week with the Andreessen Affair, one of the most celebrated UFO abduction cases. And uh, we'll also get a visit from Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our paranormal investigator with our monthly Paranormal News Roundup. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the air and The Garden Show.